This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNXRadio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. While it looks like the winter surge is now over, there is a new concern. Declining cases and number of people in the hospital, they're not declining as much anymore. It's more of a flattening, so are the variants to blame. The vaccines might have a positive side effect for some people, and we will explain. Doctors and health officials have a new campaign to try to warm vaccine skeptics up to the idea of getting their shots. New research shows indoor gyms can pump up COVID. And negative side effect of the pandemic, a rise in fraud that's hitting small businesses hard. Let's start with the flattening curve. Dr. Lisa Lee is Associate Vice President for Research and Innovation at Virginia Tech. She formerly served as Executive Director of the Presidential Bioethics Commission in the Obama administration. Doctor, where are we right now in terms of this pandemic? You know, where we are is, yes, uh, we've seen that cases have come down dramatically over the last few weeks. We're we're, um, coming down from a very, very high top, and we still have 60,000 or more new cases a day, over 2,000 deaths a day in the U.S., so it is far from over. Um, What we've seen um, is some plateauing, as you've described in other countries, but also um, in our own country, and we've seen some hot spots where we've had a couple of, um, you know, counties and in, in, uh, urban areas with some outbreaks that um, are, you know, are increasing where cases are increasing. So we we see a pattern of lots of different things going on. Um, it it is in part um, due to you know people hoping we're closer to the end and thinking we can, um, you know, relieve ourselves of our public health mitigation strategies. And we cannot do that. We must continue to mask and continue to keep our distance. Um, But we do see hope. We see that, you know, we are getting vaccine out there. We were now just above 6% of the U.S. population has achieved full vaccination. That's still way too low, Uh, but it is, um, higher than it's ever been since we just uh, have been rolling this vaccine out. The the other thing we have to think about is that this is a worldwide issue. It's a pandemic. And so, you know, until we have really control of this pandemic across the globe, we're going to be at risk for these hotspots and other kinds of um, problems with variants and other things. So what's what's your big worry if, if this plateau you know starts to go back up in the wrong direction is it the variants is it uh, people going places for spring break and traveling around and then the combination of i mean we get numb to the numbers each time right because at the beginning of this these numbers even right now would have been really really bad we would have been freaking out yeah well it's interesting you say that because when we when we talk about the the rapid declines of the last few weeks we're still above the peak that we had in summer. So when we were at our second peak and oh my goodness, it was, you know, even worse than our first peak and it's still that bad. So I do think that getting none to the numbers is really a problem. Um, We have just passed over a half a million deaths in our country from COVID-19. And every one of those half million deaths is a person who was loved by other people who are now experiencing loss and a, and a dramatic change in their life in some instances. So I, I do think it's really important to keep um, in mind that these are human beings and they're people who, um, you know, we, we, we know that are not only, you know, many have died, many are, are continue to have long-term consequences of a COVID infection. So it is concerning. Um, I think when you, when, when we talk about the possibility of another 
peak or, or an increase, you know, variants are going to be a big problem for us with COVID-19 and the virus that causes COVID-19. Every time the virus transmits, it has an opportunity to mutate. And most of those mutations are not really important and don't do anything. But sometimes the virus gets lucky and it does mutate in a way that makes it either more contagious, as we've seen with the past uh, three or four mutations we're concerned about, or it causes uh, more death and more, or more severe illness. We don't want either of those things. So our primary goal has to stop, has to be stopping transmission. We have to stop infecting each other. Dr. Lisa Lee, Associate Vice President for Research Innovation, Virginia Tech. The vaccine could have a positive side effect. There's some initial anecdotal evidence of some people who have long-haul COVID that their symptoms were eased after getting a dose of the Moderna or Pfizer vaccine. Could the vaccines help the long haulers in a way that other treatments uh, have not been able to? Dr. Brian Lau, epidemiologist, biostatistician, Johns Hopkins Center for AIDS Research, overseeing a clinical study of COVID long haulers. So, doctor, uh, what do we make of this? You know, I think the, the, the stories that we're hearing from people is really, really interesting. And it would be really great, like you said, if that is the case. Um, unfortunately, we don't really have the data yet to actually tease apart the question. You know, I one of the issues might be is that the long COVID is essentially so heterogeneous. There are so many different types of symptoms and individuals that maybe only some of them might be helped by it, right? So we just really don't know anything when it comes to this. Can you think of any logical, uh, biological reason that if this is happening, uh, and it isn't some sort of a placebo effect that some of these folks are experiencing, if in fact for some people, long haulers, the vaccines might be helping. Can you think of a good biological reason why that would be? I wish I could. I, unfortunately, I think we don't understand the biology of uh, long haulers right now in terms of what's happening with their long symptoms. And before we can even get to, you know, can the vaccine actually help them? We need to know something about how the symptoms are arising and staying with them for so long. What are the early theories as to why long haulers are long haulers? Is it just that you got infected and your body didn't manage to completely wipe out the virus and there's pockets of it around still causing damage? I think that's one theory, um, but there's a lot of different theories in terms of just maybe it's all the damage and inflammation that's been caused. You know, there's a lot of different theories out there. It's just something that has not really been studied. You know, there's been a lot of attention to individuals you know, coming out about long COVID, but at the same time, the resources and the research is just catching up to that, right? Attention is trying to be turned towards it. And and I think this is going to be a very interesting uh, area of research that's going to be really important to a lot of individuals who potentially are suffering from long COVID. Is there some common link, though, that is emerging among those who do suffer long term from COVID? Is there something that is starting to kind of bubble to the top that when you look at it, you go, you go, well, it's interesting. They all seem to have whatever that is. Yeah. So I think the, one of the problems right now is we don't really have a very good definition of what constitutes long COVID, right? We know that people are suffering, but the question then becomes, okay, is this really just one thing or is it a mixture of a bunch of things going on? And so, you know, 
while some things might come up anecdotally, as you say, sort of boil to the top, we don't really know what's going on. So I think that's why hopefully the research that me, my colleagues and I are doing will help answer some of those questions. How do people get to you and when you start to, to look at them? I remember, I think it was what, 60 Minutes did a piece on this as well. And a lot of people were saying to them, my doctor just, they wouldn't believe me. I kept saying, I'm, I'm feeling this, I'm having these problems. And you're telling me that it's all in my head, that it's not actually happening. And then finally they get to somewhere like, like your spot where they say, no, there is something going on. We just have to figure out what. Right. So, so what we're doing is we're trying to do a national survey and, and, and get data on at least 25,000 individuals that have been infected with COVID. Um, either it's still in the acute phase or just starting to come out of that acute phase or individuals that have long COVID. Um, now, I totally hear the stories about like my doctor didn't under, doesn't, didn't, doesn't believe me. And, you know, I, I keep on trying to find somebody who will listen to me. And so we hear a lot of those stories in some of the, the, the data that we've been getting from individuals. Um, but, you know, around the country, there are clinics that are now popping up to treat individuals with long COVID. Now, what that treatment is, we're not really sure at this point. So that's also going to be very interesting as we move forward to think about how do we care for these individuals that have these long-term consequences of COVID. To go back to a minute to the the notion of whether the vaccines can have some sort of a beneficial effect on people who are suffering long-term COVID, wouldn't that be relatively easy to be able to, to test uh, I mean, there are enough people now with long haul symptoms uh, to just give them the vaccine and then see what happens. Well, yeah, I mean, that would be nice in theory, right? I mean, we'd love to collect some of that data in terms of individuals who are, have long COVID and then we're able to get the vaccine. I don't think we can necessarily try to do a randomized clinical trial. Um, I think there would be some ethics around that that I'm not quite certain that, that I've thought through. But, you know, saying, you know, you can get the vaccine, but you can't might be a little bit problematic at this time, given what we know about the vaccine. Um, so, you know, the question then becomes, how do we study this in a in a systematic way that is not subject to some of the biases that that would lead us astray to get the wrong answer? For people that, that develop this, is it always that they had a really bad case or could it be even they were asymptomatic or it was really mild? They're not like all hospitalized and then come out of it and still have symptoms months later. This could this kind of runs the range. Right. I think that's one of the really concerning things because, you know, we don't really know who it is that's going to develop these long COVID symptoms, right? It doesn't have to be somebody who had a very uh, severe infection and end up in the hospital. There are individuals with mild cases that, you know, were just doing okay, dealing with it at home, that come down with these long-term symptoms, as well as getting reports of individuals who are asymptomatic as well. So part of what we're trying to do is actually see and determine what is the overall prevalence or how big of a problem this is, because there just really isn't that good numbers around these, these, these issues yet. Dr. Brian Lau overseeing a clinical study of people with long COVID. Doctor, thanks. We've talked about people recently who are trying to game the system and cut in line to get a vaccine shot, especially here in California. While lots of people are anxious for the vaccine, lots are not. 
So that's why a new campaign has started to educate people, to try to educate them. KYW's Matt Leon discussed the vaccine education initiative with Dr. Georges Benjamin from the American Public Health Association and Michelle Hillman from the Ad Council. So this is the largest and most critical communications campaign in our history at the Ag Council. We have convened a broad coalition of medical experts, creative media community, all coming together to help educate consumers, give them the information they need so that they can make informed and empowered healthcare choices for them and their family when it comes to the vaccine. Dr. Benjamin, I find the idea of vaccine hesitancy, which is obviously from polling and just anecdotally real. It is a significant hurdle. I find it is in two buckets. I think it is with people of color who have had some awful situations throughout American history when it comes to, you know, medical situations and you get it. And then really a lot of white folks that I can't put my finger on why they would not be with this. Can you talk about the vaccine hesitancy and, and what you're seeing and why it is? Well, look, we, we, we know that um, um, people are um, are curious. Um, you know, we've had a lot of discussion around vaccines. Um, and I got to tell you, it's OK for people to have questions. You know, when I was practicing clinical medicine, you know, I would sit down with patients and talk to them about any new medication I wanted to give them. Because I wanted them to understand why they needed to take the medication, what the pros and cons are of not taking the medication, and what it would do to their bodies. Um, And I think that's a legitimate thing for people to do. Now, obviously, we have a whole range of people that have had different life experiences. You know, if you're African-American and you you remember the history of the Tuskegee study, or you know that people took Henrietta Lacks cells... Um, without uh, really compensating the family. Or we know that some of the the terrible, terrible things that have happened um, in healthcare settings where people have been mistreated. Uh, That's one experience. And then you have other people who, you know, they're read a lot about the vaccine, but they're just not sure. Um, Regardless of race or ethnicity, they just aren't sure because they've read a lot, they've heard a lot from their friends, and they've heard a lot of misinformation. You know, the vaccine is uh, got chips in it to track you. It's got um, mercury in it. It was made from this or that. All those things are not true. And so people are concerned. And so what we're trying to do is educate people because we know that knowledge is power. And we're trying to move them from being curious and wanting knowledge to being confident that this is something that they want to do to help them get back to doing the things that they love to do. I don't want to follow up on that, Dr. Benjamin. What is a tougher nut to crack? The person who is hesitant because of a lot of the situations you mentioned in history and stuff like that, or the person whose belief is based in misinformation and disinformation? I mean, which one? I don't want neither is easy, but is there how do you approach each one? Let me tell you how you approach. So, first of all, I believe you, you. to approach people from where they are. And what I do is I say, okay, what are your concerns? Because if I understand what their concerns are, so I'm doing more listening than talking and hearing what their concerns are, then I can specifically address that concern. So let's say, for example, they're saying that, you know, the study um, was um, done over, you know, a, a very quick period of 10 months. Well, the answer is, yeah, it was done with great scientific rigor because they got all, you know, and all the science was done 
No corners were cut anywhere along the way there, but we took all the bureaucracy out of the way. You know, if, you, if you're making a product and you know you're going to have something to sell at the end of it, and the government guaranteed they're going to buy the product, then the companies are much more likely to produce the product. And then the scientists, we've been able to convince people and show people that the science was done quite well. And in fact, not only was the science done well, but in this situation, we even had, if you're an African-American and concerned about it, we even had African-Americans involved in almost every phase of the study, both on the scientific side, as well as the, um, the side of getting the, you know, being part of the, the clinical trials. Coming up after this short break, your spin class could be a COVID cesspool. Bodybuilders and those looking to wear a six-pack rather than drinking one might be a little weary of this research, or maybe not. CDC officials found indoor gyms can easily spread COVID. Yep, one case identified 55 infections among 81 people who went to a high-intensity class in Chicago in August. Uh, with us is Jack Caravanos, clinical professor of environmental public health, New York University School of Public Health. So, Jack, let's go through it. Inside, not the safest place to be. Yes, there was a recent report of uh, a situation in Hawaii over the summer where uh, of 27 some odd patrons that were occupying an inter inside, uh, gym indoors, uh, doing a yoga class and a spinning class of sorts, uh, 21 ended up getting uh, infected. And it was really a, a worst case scenario. Um, uh, basically, you had an enclosed space, about 400 square feet, the uh, instructor was wearing a mask, but none of the uh, uh, people in the room were wearing masks. And you had a fan blowing from the instructor to the people. Uh, you did not have fresh air ventilation. So it really produced this uh, epidemic, which is teaching us a lot about what to wear and, and what type of uh, ventilation we really need to be effective. Yeah, you're talking to a city where either A, we can't go to the gym, or B, when we do, we have to go outside and still wear masks outside. So what was the issue here? Was it just people ignoring the rules, or were there no rules out there in Hawaii when it came to this class? Yes, it's, it's not sure exactly what happened. I think people felt good seeing the instructor wearing a, a, a mask. But of course, when the instructor is shouting the instructions and, and generating the aerosols, uh, they were still a small enough of a space where the aerosols apparently got into the uh, patrons. Um, the, the people exercising were not wearing masks. And as I said, there was actually a fan that was helping to stir up the uh, air in the room. So there wasn't really an exhaust ventilation. You're pretty much sort of mixing it up. So if the virus didn't get you the first time, it would possibly come around and get you again. So what does it say uh, about the, you had mentioned ventilation. What does it say when the day comes and people return in many parts of the country to working out indoors in gyms, even if they all wear masks, do we need to talk now about substantially upgrading the kinds of ventilations available in these places? Yeah, I think what happened here was a combination of a small room, uh, inadequate ventilation, at least no fresh air ventilation. It was just sort of stirring around and uh, uh, the distance from the instructor to the, the to people exercising. And I think for for the future, what we're probably going to see is mandatory 
air exchange ventilation. So you have like four air changes an hour, and most of that is fresh air versus the same air. And really space. This was a 400 some odd square foot room with 21 people in it. So it was pretty crowded. Um, not like the gym I go to, which is pretty empty these days, and you could really socially distance. How do you feel about the places? And I think we've all seen them. It's kind of like a warehouse setting. They've got the bay doors open. So they go, okay, it's kind of outside, right? We can keep this open. Is that safe enough or is that something to be aware of? Yeah, I've seen I've seen gyms. And of course, this is Hawaii, beautiful weather, as is California. So having the doors open feels great. And it's great public health practice. So that would be uh, ideal. Uh, for other places, it really is a question of crowding. Uh, not only do you have a lot of people in one tight area, but they're, what they're doing is inherently hazardous. They're breathing, they're sweating, they're exercising, they're spitting, they're shouting. So they're all pumped up. And that's really, I think, the bad combination. So it's one thing pumping some weights in a gym uh, or on an elliptical, but it's another thing when you're in a whole class uh, generating these uh, aerosols. Jack Caravanos, clinical professor, environmental public health, New York University School of Global Public Health. The pandemic has changed the way people handle money, as in they don't as much anymore, at least cash. More purchasing is done through debit and credit cards, either in the store or online. And swindlers and thieves have taken notice fraud and credit card scams on the rise. Small businesses get some of the worst of it. John Buzzard, lead fraud and security analyst, digital finance consultancy firm Javelin Strategy and Research. So, John, uh, what do the credit card fraudsters and the pandemic have to do with each other? Well, certainly with identity fraud, especially with it being on the rise, just in 2019, Javelin found that um, identity fraud cost U.S. consumers roughly $17 billion, spread out over 13 million victims. <clears throat> what that really kind of tells us as well is that consumers are being drawn into that web through a variety of things, including their payment cards. We are having a problem, though, particularly right now with restaurants. And it's not us that's having the problem. The restaurants are having problems. They are getting people ordering off of credit cards. And then they're getting the people saying that either A, they didn't get their order, or B, something was wrong. They didn't get the amount. So they're going to the credit card companies for refunds. And quite often, these companies are going to side with the customer and the restaurants are kind of being left in the lurch here. And this is happening a lot. There's at least one restaurant in LA we profiled here a couple of days ago that's saying they're going to have to close because there's been so much of this going on. People saying, uh, it wasn't right, so give me back my money. And the restaurant saying, well, we sent you the food. Insane. It's um, a compression that I think that is part, of course, as the economy slides downward. Um, there's several things that I think that are at play here, even if it wasn't perhaps uh, covered in some of the, the articles that I've read this week around the, the restaurant compression. One of them, of course, is the fact that there are chargebacks that are always associated with uh, fraud or the fact that the services haven't been received and consumers occasionally do that. But I would suggest also that, you know, the restaurants are experiencing this heightened level of fraud chargebacks from payment cards that may have fallen into the hands of criminals used through, you know, there's so many popular delivery apps um, that are out there. And they may have been plugged into those apps used to purchase very, you know, large expensive quantities of food. And then that chargeback comes back later as sort of that really painful aha moment for, you know, these restaurants that are desperately clinging on. All right. So what is being, if anything, done about this? Well, I think the story is revealing itself. It's very interesting to me that 
Um, the restaurants would cite fraud in particular as something that's driving the mellow business. My thought is that the complexities from being a dine-in only location as an example, whether in this case they were or they weren't, and then having to kind of pivot in 2020 as many restaurants have to kind of a delivery and pickup option really places them sort of on the precipice of being in unfamiliar territory. In terms of what's being done about that, you know, there's there's structure in place for payment card fraud resolution. Dispute resolution has been around as long as there's been a MasterCard, a Visa, an Amex, et cetera. But merchants, and when I say a merchant, I do mean the restaurants, if they sign up for some technology to help them do curbside or delivery to expedite to save their businesses, they may not be reading the small print and understanding that just because that order comes through and prints out and they fulfill it, that there isn't this risk later that could be associated with fraud because the criminals use the card through the app. And then three or four days later, um, here I am looking at my statement and I discover, gee, there's something that I don't recognize on my checking account. I'm going to dispute that. It is fraud and it comes back that way. I would say that there's a fair amount of that occurring as well. They're not going to understand the nexus of that until it's probably too late. Yeah. You either got people ordering food and saying they didn't get it and going back and getting their money back or people not ordering food and seeing charges and going, well, I didn't order anything, so give me my money back. Uh, John Buzzard, lead fraud security analyst, digital financial consultancy firm, Javelin Strategy and Research. If you had COVID recently and are getting impatient about a vaccine shot, you might be okay, at least for now. New research suggests the level of protection your immune system is giving you from the virus now is comparable to getting a vaccine, at least for a few months. Researchers from the National Cancer Institute found the risk of developing a subsequent infection more than three months later was about 90 percent lower than for people who had not been previously infected and therefore had no immunity to the virus. You can find us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Stitcher. Stitcher.